is in youth is that it is impervious to the east wind. Phineas felt quite sure now that Violet and her lover were reconciled, and he had a distinct feeling of the place where the ache had been. Dear Violet! But after all, Violet lacked that sweet, clinging, feminine softness which made Mary Flood Jones so preeminently the most charming of her sex. The Earl, when he had repeated his general apology, especially to Lady Cantrip, who was the only lady present except his daughter, came up to our hero and shook him kindly by the hand. He took him up to one of the windows, and then dressed him in a voice of mock solemnity. "'Stick to the colonies, young man,' he said, "'and never meddle with foreign affairs, especially not at Blankenburg.' "'Never again, my lord, never again.' and leave all questions of firearms to be arranged between the horse-guards and the war-office. I have heard a good deal about it since I saw you, and I retract a part of what I said. But a duel is a foolish thing, a very foolish thing. Come, here is dinner. And the Earl walked off with Lady Cantrip, and Lord Cantrip walked off with Lady Laura. Barrington Earl followed, and Phineas had an opportunity of saying a word to his friend Lord Chiltern as they went down together. "'It's all right between you and your father?' "'Yes, after a fashion. There's no knowing how long it will last. He wants me to do three things, and I won't do any one of them.' "'What of the three? "'To go into Parliament, to be an owner of sheep and oxen, and to hunt in his own county. I should never attend the first. I should ruin myself with the second, and I should never get a run in the third. But there was not a word said about his marriage. There were only seven who sat down to dinner, and the six were all people with whom Phineas was or had been on most intimate terms. Lord Cantrip was his official chief, and, since that connection had existed between them, Lady Cantrip had been very gracious to him. She quite understood the comfort which it was to her husband to have under him, as his representative in the House of Commons, a man whom he could thoroughly trust and like, and therefore she had used her woman's arts to bind Phineas to her lord in more than mere official bondage. She had tried her skill also upon Lawrence Fitzgibbon, but altogether in vain. He had eaten her dinners, and accepted her courtesies, and had given for them no return whatever. But Phineas had possessed a more grateful mind, and had done all that had been required of him, had done all that had been required of him, till there had come that terrible absurdity in Ireland. "'I knew very well what sort of things would happen when they brought such a man as Mr. Monk into the cabinet,' Lady Cantrip had said to her husband. But though the party was very small, and though the guests were all his intimate friends, Phineas suspected nothing special till an attack was made upon him as soon as the servants had left the room. This was done in the presence of the two ladies, and, no doubt, had been preconcerted. There was Lord Cantrip there, who had already said much to him, and Barrington Earl, who had said more even than Lord Cantrip. Lord Brentford himself, as a member of the Cabinet, opened the attack, by asking whether it was actually true that Mr. Monk meant to go on with his motion. Barrington Earl asserted that Mr. Monk positively would do so. "'And Gresham will oppose it?' asked the Earl. "'Of course he will,' said Barrington. 
"'Of course he will,' said Lord Cantrip. "'I know what I should think of him if he did not,' said Lady Cantrip. "'He is the last man in the world to be forced into a thing,' said Lady Laura. Then Phineas knew pretty well what was coming on him. Lord Brentford began again by asking how many supporters Mr. Monk would have in the House. "'Well, that depends upon the amount of courage which the Conservatives may have,' said Barrington Earle. "'If they dare to vote for a thoroughly democratic measure, simply for the sake of turning us out, it is quite on the cards that they may succeed.' "'But of our own people?' asked Lord Cantrip. "'You had better inquire that of Phineas Finn,' said Barrington. And then the attack was made. Our hero had a bad half-hour of it. Though many words were said which must have gratified him much, they all wanted to keep him, so Lord Cantrip declared. "'Except one or two whom I could name, and who are particularly anxious to wear his shoes,' said Barrington, thinking that certain reminiscences of Phineas with regard to Mr. Bonteen and others might operate as strongly as any other consideration to make him love his place. Lord Brentford declared that he could not understand it, that he should find himself lost in amazement if such a man as his young friend allowed himself to be led into the outer wilderness by such an ignis fatuous of light as this. Lord Cantrip laid down the unwritten traditional law of government officials very plainly. A man in office, in an office which really imposed upon him as much work as he could possibly do, with credit to himself or his cause, was dispensed from the necessity of a conscience with reference to other matters. It was for Sir Walter Morrison to have a conscience about Irish tenant right, as no doubt he had, just as Phineas Finn had a conscience about Canada and Jamaica and the Cape. Barrington Earle was very strong about parties in general and painted the comforts of official position in glowing colours. But I think that the two ladies were more efficacious than even their male relatives in the arguments which they used. "'We have been so happy to have you among us,' said Lady Cantrip, looking at him with beseeching, almost loving eyes. "'Mr. Finn knows,' said Lady Laura, "'that since he first came into Parliament I have always believed in his success.' and I have been very proud to see it. "'We shall weep over him as over a fallen angel if he leaves us,' said Lady Cantrip. "'I won't say that I will weep,' said Lady Laura, "'but I do not know anything of the kind that would so truly make me unhappy.' What was he to say in answer to applications so flattering and so pressing? He would have said nothing, had that been possible, but he felt himself obliged to reply. He replied very weakly, of course, not justifying himself, but declaring that as he had gone so far as he must go further. He must vote for the measure now. Both his chief and Barrington Earl proved, or attempted to prove, that he was wrong in this. Of course, he would not speak on the measure, and his vote for his party would probably be allowed to pass without notice. One or two newspapers might perhaps attack him, but what public man cared for such attacks as those? His whole party would hang by him, and in that he would find ample consolation. Phineas could only say that he would think of it, and this he said in so irresolute a tone of voice that all the men then present believed that he was gained. The two ladies, however, were of a different opinion.' 
in spite of anything that anybody may say, he will do what he thinks right when the time comes, said Laura to her father afterwards. But then Lady Laura had been in love with him, was perhaps almost in love with him still. I am afraid he is a mule, said Lady Cantrip to her husband. He is a good mule up a hill with a load on his back, said his lordship. "'But with the mule there always comes a time when you can't manage him,' said Lady Cantrip. But Lady Cantrip had never been in love with Phineas. Phineas found a moment before he left Lord Brentford's house to say a word to Lady Laura as to the commission that had been given to him. "'It can never be,' said Lady Laura, shuddering. "'Never, never, never!' "'You are not angry with me for speaking?' "'Oh, no, not if he told you. "'He made me promise that I would. "'Tell him it cannot be. "'Tell him that if he has any instruction to send me "'as to what he considers to be my duty, "'I will endeavour to comply, "'if that duty can be done apart. "'I will recognise him so far because of my vow, "'but not even for the sake of my vow will I endeavour to live with him. His presence would kill me. When Phineas repeated this, or as much of this as he judged to be necessary, to Mr. Kennedy, a day or two afterwards, that gentleman replied that in such case he would have no alternative but to seek redress at law. "'I have done nothing to my wife,' said he, "'of which I need be ashamed. "'It will be sad, no doubt, to have all our affairs bandied about in court,' and made the subject of comment in newspapers, but a man must go through that, or worse than that, in the vindication of his rights, and for the performance of his duty to his maker. That very day Mr. Kennedy went to his lawyer, and desired that steps might be taken for the restitution to him of his conjugal rights. End of chapter 68